Hi there, and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. There has been intense focus on the nutritional needs of ICU patients in recent years, but what happens to them after they go to the wards? This important question is now the subject of interest for highly regarded critical care dietitians and researchers, Leanne Chappell and Emma Ridley. This podcast is produced with the assistance of an educational grant from Baxter Healthcare. Leanne, Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us, Todd. Leanne, what do we know currently about the nutritional needs of patients who leave the ICU? What's their nutritional status when when they're discharged? Um, Very good question, Todd. And the answer is probably going to be pretty brief because we don't really know a whole lot. I think you probably count on um, both hands a number of studies that have been done in that post-ICU phase. Um, I guess one of the challenges with that population is they don't just go on to a post-ICU ward, they go off into any ward in the hospital and then get managed by those home teams. And so there's not really any continuity after they leave ICU. Um, we do know by some of the work both Emma and myself have done in post-ICU patients that once they start eating orally, they don't consume the nutrition that they are prescribed. Um, and we do know that that has implications in that these patients are often malnourished after they leave ICU. Um, so it's definitely an area that we need to be focusing on more. You mentioned there that um, patients who leave ICU are uh, already tend to be malnourished. What's known about that? Yeah, um, so not a whole lot, but we do know that even at the start of an ICU admission that 50% of patients are malnourished. So they're starting often from a poor baseline before we even get them into ICU. Um, and a lot of those patients may have come from the ward already or they've been home struggling with medical conditions that have led to that malnutrition state. Um, some of the work I've done that's more small physiological work has shown that um, a lot more patients are malnourished at the time that they discharge from ICU. And I'm not sure if Emma can comment more about specific studies around that space, but we definitely are, are setting them up by the time they get to ICU for failure, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of the data that we have, which is just observational, um, you know, there's nothing really more than that, but it's telling a consistent story. So I think that's something that we have to pay attention to. So even though it's a, you know, it's lower quality study designs, they're all saying a similar thing. So it obviously means there is a signal there that patients are struggling for various reasons. Um, and uh, Leanne and I uh, published a paper sometime last year or maybe the year before. We kind of grouped it as um, system-related things, clinical-related things, and then patient-related factors. So it's actually a whole lot of things that are contributing. It's not just any one thing. And it goes across multiple different, different aspects of care for our patients. I think that's what makes it challenging because it's going to need a multifaceted approach. It's not just one thing we're struggling with and probably those um, factors might vary within hospitals as well so institutions might have different issues around systems and things like that the patient populations you see may differ um, and so it's certainly a problem and as Leanne has mentioned we know that you know patients when they eat orally it's even worse than enteral and parenteral nutrition so we can provide about 55 percent of energy and protein with enteral and parenteral and if it's oral it's around 30 percent of your requirements so it's not you know we're not talking about almost getting there we're not even remotely getting there and if a patient is staying for a long time on oral nutrition even in the icu but then they have a ward stay 
you know, if you can imagine 30% of your requirements day in, day out for, a, you know, a, a complex hospital stay, it's really um, suboptimal. And we don't yet understand the full complications of that, but you can hypothesize that it's not going to be great. So patients are leaving the ICU already malnourished and then have a recovery phase in front of them where they presumably need to be well well nourished to be able to recover. What do we know about the needs in that phase? Is, uh, is there any research to guide clinicians in what they should be prescribing for patients? Yeah, it's um, interesting, and Leanne can probably add some of the physiology um, after this, but um, we kind of have moved on with our thinking where we've divided the metabolic phases a little bit, and it is theoretical. It's not we don't have strong evidence for this, but it makes sense from a physiological point of view where acutely patients are kind of shut down metabolically and perhaps they don't need as much nutrition as we earlier thought. But as they move through their illness, their metabolism changes to be more in a recovery phase. And that's when we're starting to think now, actually, we should be really getting in there to intervene. The difficulty is that we can't easily predict that change. Um, but certainly in the post-ICU period, most patients will have moved through that acute phase and are in a you know closer to recovery phase from a metabolism point of view. So that's when things like energy requirements can increase again, uh, protein requirements can increase. But we also have to factor in things like if they've had a huge weight loss or a significant loss in muscle mass, those things can also change requirements they can decrease requirements so it is um, quite hard to accurately predict it but um, we certainly know that the patient is probably more able to process nutrition and use the nutrition in, in a good way for recovery in that later phase compared to an earlier phase and that's why a lot of us are kind of starting to move our attention to that period. I think in terms of, of prescription or what these patients require there have been a few studies that have actually looked at metabolic rate post-ICU um, so our group did publish a paper um, in the last 12 months looking at a, a small population where we followed them from ICU to the ward and then three months after they left ICU. Um, and it does show a decrease in their metabolic rate over that time. Um, but we don't know about how much nutrition to feed against those requirements and, and the impact that that might have. Um, and given that particularly when they're eating orally, their deficits are so much greater than they are in ICU. Um, really that, that prescription rate is so far away that um, we're not even getting close to that for a variety of reasons. Just one thing to add, um, sorry, just on that thought is it's all kind of gearing up to the fact that nutrition is probably a long-term intervention, not a short-term intervention. And we've kind of treated it as a short-term intervention so far. And that's okay because we've had to get some answers in the areas that we didn't have answers in. And that was kind of in the acute ICU period that we really had not much at all when we started in terms of evidence. But now I guess it's becoming clear that perhaps that's not the way we need to intervene and the nutrition is not just a drug that you're going to give for a couple of days and see a change. It's probably more a longer-term thing, which is why we have to look at extending our interventions. That leads obviously to another question, which is what do we know about the, the nutritional needs of patients after they're discharged from hospital? Is there any research being done in that, that area? <laughs> we know very little. <laughs> yeah. Very little. Yeah. 
Um, I have a PhD student that's actually just looking at some patients who have um, been in ICU and gone to rehab. So we're actually just looking at what happens with nutrition. We're not measuring requirements or anything at that point, but we're trying to profile what happens because that obviously is the next thing is what happens once they get home. Um, I know from a functional point of view, and we all do know this, that they continue to have deficits long-term. They continue to have functional issues. That then makes me think, well, if you got home and you're having functional issues, how are you going to cook and manage eating and get back to all of those things? So I think, you know, for sure it makes sense to me that there's problems ongoing in that area, but we we don't have that data. I don't know if Leanne's aware of anything, but I'm not. Yeah, I think there's a just a small number of observational studies. So our group has done some work as part of those longer-term um, physiology studies looking at things like appetite and gastric emptying and those barriers that are a problem in ICU and how they resolve over time. Um, and it just seems like the, the issues that arise in feeding patients in ICU do change on the ward and then change again post-ICU. Um, Louise Olbridge from um, the UK has also done some work of surveys of patients post-ICU at varying durations, some two weeks, some two years post-ICU and has shown that they have a lot of symptoms. Um, so appetite or lack of appetite is a major barrier for these patients. And, and I think that plays really into the fatigue that they experience probably because they've lost so much muscle um, over their hospital stay that they're just not in a place where they can manage their nutrition well at that point. So we've mentioned a couple of those things, but looking at that post-ICU phase in the hospital, what are the major barriers to people being able to, to achieve nutritional goals? Um, I think as Emma pointed out earlier, it is multifaceted and I think it's going to differ the, the diagnosis that the patient has and what brought them into ICU. We're very good at treating every ICU patient the same, but post-ICU, they've got so many different medical conditions that the barriers to nutrition are going to be different. Um, we have done some, some work around sort of trying to categorise the, the physiological barriers um, so looking at things like appetite and satiety and gastric emptying. Um, so one of my PhD students, Beth Weiner-Smith, is in the process of writing up a publication around this where we compared post-ICU survivors to a general medical cohort to see if they, at that point, differ to other hospitalised patients. Um, and it, their nutrition intake is definitely low at that point, um, particularly compared to health and similar to what a general medical patient would eat but the barriers are different. So it's very much appetite related and fatigue related at that point from, from what my data showed. There's um, also some, I guess, the system-based issues are probably worth touching on as well. So we've got the patient-related factors, but there are system-related things that are not really supporting us. So that potential culture of de-plumbing patients, um, getting everything out, I mean, that for some patients is really important to move them forward and to help them feel like they are moving forward in their journey. But for some patients, if they're really unable to eat much at all, what you're probably doing is setting them back further from progressing nutrition. So it probably is more of an individualized approach that we need rather than let's just take everything out for every patient. We probably need to say, have it, have an actual team discussion. Okay, where is this patient at? What's important for them? How are they going? Is this going to benefit them or may, may it send them back? Um, and the other, I guess, problem sometimes is food services within hospitals. Unfortunately, it's not geared all the time to be 
100% to the patient's satisfaction. And that sounds silly, isn't it? Because it's there for the patient. But unfortunately, it's just not. And um, there are some hospitals around Australia that have amazing food services, like hotel style on demand services. Um, and there's clear data that those services result in better intake and higher um, satisfaction for the patients, but they cost a lot of money and it's a big outlay for a health service and not every health service is prepared to do that at the moment. So we need to understand more about the benefits of having a better food service system and how that might help our patients. I think on Emma's earlier point as well, I think we treat nutrition post-ICU as reactive rather than proactive in that we take the nasogastric tube out and then wait for them not to eat. And then often it's very difficult to put that back in. So I think maybe assessing if then oral intake's adequate before we start um, removing those um, access points, I think would be a clear way forward. Uh, it does take a multidisciplinary approach and some of the more qualitative work that's been done in this space shows that that medical and nursing professionals see that leaving a nasogastric in is a step backwards for the patient and they really want to progress the patient and think that by deplumbing them, that's going to achieve that. There's some excellent points in there. Um, we often try to, or we tend to uh, see nutritional support in that post phase as either TPN or EN, but there's a lot of other factors, as you say, uh, appetite and satiety and those sorts of things. What sort of things can can clinicians do to support somebody uh, with their nutrition other than just the prescription of, um, of uh, a nutritional regime? I think we need to have a more holistic approach, to be honest. And I think it's difficult because um, we know doctors and nurses and there's a really great meta-analysis that was published. I think it might have even been in The Lancet looking at medical education and nutrition. And it's just not there. Like you, you just don't get that um, education. And so I think we need to have a better approach in terms of working together as a team um, and actually looking at what are the issues for this particular patient. So if it's nausea, okay, let's get a proper anti-emetic regime in place and not just PRN have something as you see it when, when the meal arrives, oh, I feel sick now, okay, have an anti-emetic. Like let's have a proper regime where we're treating that nausea as something that's really impacting the patient so that they can then eat. So I think just having a more holistic look at the patient in terms of what are the actual issues? Is it functional? Is it system? And I think the system issues, if you've got significant system issues, then set about trying to fix it. Like what is the actual problem? And then let's try and fix that. Um, let's try and get uh, more regular supplements into the ICU if that's the problem. Let's get a menu monitor if you can to come around and do patient menus so that those menus are correct for the patients. Um, we unfortunately have an issue where a lot of our patients might get default meals, which is where it's just whatever's on that day. They don't get to choose anything. Um, and that's that was just a systems-based issue that we were having post-COVID. And so we've been able to implement some changes to try and improve that. So I think actually sitting down and looking at your barriers and addressing that will go a long way to actually helping our patients um, and, you know, having a proper discussion around what do you feel like eating, what are your preferences, your likes, your dislikes, and actually trying to support them in that way. I think one of the biggest barriers is monitoring in that we don't even know what these patients are eating a lot of the time. And um, I think there's a lot more evidence showing that these patients do tend to have cognitive deficits after they leave ICU some of the work I've done, even trying to gain patient consent, is difficult because delirium is so prevalent 
particularly early after ICU. So you can't just ask the patient what they're eating and then nursing staff are so busy, it's hard to get a, a food intake chart filled out. So often even knowing where you need to, to, like what gaps you need to fill is difficult. So I think having better hospital systems in place where we can monitor these patients well. Um, and then as Emma said, filling those individual gaps, I think is important. I'm really interested in the, the concept of appetite and satiety that you mentioned earlier, Leanne. Um, I, I mean, everyone can relate to the experience of being quite unwell and just not feeling like eating. What can be done about that? It's a really good question and something that I'm hoping I'll be able to explore a bit more in detail in the next few years. Um, I think, I guess, trying to find out where that poor appetite comes from. Is it satiety in that they're getting full quickly? Are they just not getting hungry or is that impacted by things like nausea? Um, I've looked at things like taste changes, which don't really seem to be an impact for these patients, but probably happens on an individual level more than a cohort level. Um, and I think looking into things like um, medications that may help stimulate appetite and learning from some of our colleagues, I guess, in the oncology space to see if there's some strategies around that that, that may be an impact. And I also think often the stimulation for appetite is movement. So working with the physiotherapist of trying to get patients up and out of hospital, we know that that's something that just doesn't happen post-ICU. So really trying to work as a multidisciplinary approach to improving appetite to start with. Appetite's a bit like motivation too. You actually have to start eating to get it back. So a lot of people will say, I've got no appetite, I can't eat. But actually your body is waiting for you to create a consistent schedule. So then it's like, okay, it's breakfast time. Okay, it's lunchtime. It's dinner time. But in hospital and in ICU, we know we completely lose any sense of routine and it impacts all sorts of um, body functions, including sleep and delirium and all of those things. But it probably impacts appetite too, because you've got absolutely no scheduled meal time that's proper. And then we, you know, we're waiting for it to come back, but it actually won't come back unless you put a little bit of work into it as well. And so it's, you know, it's that whole education piece around, okay, we need you to start, even if it's a tiny little amount, just start having something at a time that would be approximately breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, and then hopefully you can also make some progress. And I think that that might be where the role of sort of supplemental EN comes in, in that we often think that once we're feeding patients entrally that their appetite is going to be impacted. But um, that's not actually the case. And there's some great work by Rebecca Stratton that looks at, timing of ventral nutrition and the impact on appetite and whether you're getting fed continuously or overnight or during the day makes no difference on appetite. So trying to use that as a way of, of getting their gut used to nutrition and, and um, progressing towards letting them um, sort of take oral intake themselves and just supporting them through that process with ventral, I think will play a big role in the future. We often think about trying to stimulate uh, responses like appetite with pharmacotherapy, but are there other ways? Um, there's been some research on things like chewing gum or bolus feeding. What does the the evidence tell us is uh, uh, can work? I just I don't know about stimulating appetite. Leanne might know that, but I do. I just I do know as per Leanne's just mentioned, um, it really is a fallacy that enteral nutrition prevents appetite that's really not the case and I know that's sometimes a motivation to take the tube out and 
we'll take the tube out and we'll wait and see if they eat. I can guarantee you probably 80% of the time they won't eat. Because the reason they have the tube in is because they can't eat for lots of different reasons. So I think we just have to throw that one out. Um, patients that are really hungry and want to eat will be eating even on enteral feeds. You'll see them progress. They'll be like, yes, I've got my appetite. I'm doing really well. They're the ones that you take the tube out and you think, right, okay, we're good. The ones that are not eating and are struggling are the wrong ones, I think. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I know people have tried to use caffeine and things like that um, to stimulate appetite um, in other groups, but I don't think we're there in terms of critical illness. I don't actually think we understand enough about it at the moment as to what the issues are. Yeah, definitely. I think there's been one interventional study post-ICU um, that's actually been published. So I think there's a few underway, but um, really starting to look at some of those other strategies, we haven't really explored it, but... I think there are, yeah, looking at other populations, as Emma said, I know even in nursing homes, often they give you a cleansing ale before um, the meal <laughs> to try and stimulate appetite. So there may be a role for something like that. Who knows? I do think the other part of it too is to try and treat nutrition not as an optional extra. And this is kind of a frustration of mine that it's treated like a, okay, well, if you want to do this, then that would be good. And if you can't, then okay, it's fine when really it should be treated as this is part of your recovery. And so there's processes like it's um, something called MedPass, which is a supplement program that's actually delivered, say, in 60 mil amounts on the medication chart. And so you give a, a small volume but high concentration supplement um, four times a day and the patient gets, you know, maybe 20, 25% of their intake just by doing that. Um, and by treating it as a medication, it's like this is an important part of your therapy. It's not optional. You have to take it like you would take an antibiotic because it's part of your recovery. So I think we do have to have a bit more of a team approach around the value of nutrition. We think this is important. We want to get you home. You're doing physio. You have to have your nutrition. You've got to participate in all your other therapies rather than it just sometimes seems to be presented as, a, well, if you want to, you can do this. If you don't want to, we won't do it. And for patients that are really struggling, I don't know that that's that helpful. Does it matter what you eat? Is there a, a, a particular blend of uh, proteins, carbohydrates, lipids that help with um, issues like satiety and, and appetite? Or does it uh, is it one size fits, fits all? This is definitely one for Leanne. <laughs> I don't know if I have an answer for that. I, I, yeah, I, looking at other populations, I probably haven't looked into the evidence enough to answer that. I think you definitely need a balance. Um, and fibre probably plays a role in that as well. But, I mean, we don't know what to feed patients in ICU when it comes to different macronutrients. So we're a long way off knowing what to do over the long term. I do think a balance is important. For example, you know, it's a lot, there's a lot of hype about protein at the moment. It's all about protein. But if you only gave protein and you don't give enough energy, the protein that you give is used as a fuel source. It's not used as a muscle developing source in all aspects because um, your body needs fuel in first instance, and then it will start generating things like muscle and muscle protein turnover and things like that. So, um, I think we do have to have balance. I've, I've seen multiple studies where they give really low amounts of energy, but maybe a high amount of whatever it is, protein or another macronutrient. Um, and the body's 
it's it's more um, smart than us. It's clever. It's not going to, it can't say, okay, I've got a really high amount of protein. I'm just going to use that to generate new muscle. If it hasn't got enough fuel overall, it's not going to do that. It's going to be using some of that for an energy source. And so I think the balance is, is important, but beyond the specifics of that, I don't think we're there. And, you know, personally, when I'm talking to patients, I'm not telling them to eat specific things. I'm telling them to eat. What would you like? Um, whatever it is I can get you, I'll get you. Um, but maybe that's just my style. I'm not a dietitian that's like, you need to be having fruit and veg and this and that and blah, blah, blah. I think we just get them eating, um, whatever that is. If that's McDonald's, I like. I don't mind. Whatever you'd like to have um, is fine with me just to get you started basically and then we'll work on the rest later but just get started. Yeah. It's you heard it here first, folks, that uh, <laughs> yeah. Emma Ridley is recommending McDonald's for all of her ICU patients. I didn't say recommending. I said <laughs> that's what they want. I no, it's saying. on tape now, Emma. You can't get away from it. <laughs> I think that's the time where dietitians are the least fussy with, we're just happy with any amount of nutrition. So, and we do probably focus on protein thinking that that's going to help with, with recovery and muscle mass, but um, whether that's actually true um, will need to be investigated further. So it's clear that we need to have a longitudinal view of nutrition throughout the patient's stay, preferably before they get to the ICU, during ICU, after ICU, and even once they go home. Now, you're both involved in the intent study, which is looking at that whole of hospital approach. What can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, so I'm leading intent in Leanne's on our management committee, which is amazing. And we've got eight patients left to recruit. So we're really trying to finish um, very soon. It's the first multi-center uh, longitudinal study in critical illness, looking at nutrition across hospitalization. So it's important. The data is going to be quite important. It is a phase two pilot, but it's going to provide a lot of data around you know, the, the strategies that we're using. Um, we use an individualized approach of supplemental PN in the ICU if the patient needs it. So that's individually assessed each day in the intervention arm. So if they don't need it, if they're eating well, or if they have um, enteral nutrition, full coverage, they don't get it. But if they're failing, they'll get a little top up, whatever they need, um, but not to, you know, overshoot, just to provide a top up. And then on the ward, um, there's no supplemental PN, but I guess it's an enhanced approach to nutrition. So we try and promote enteral nutrition continuing until the patient can eat. And then when they're eating, we provide um, dedicated oral nutrition supplements in a way to try and bridge the gap, plus recommend prescribing more. So it is an individualized approach. I guess it tries to encompass a lot of things we've talked about, some of those system-based issues, some of the patient-based issues. We look at um, nutrition impacting symptoms each day. So we're collecting information on why patients can't eat, what they're telling us the problems are. So it'll be great to have all of that data in terms of thinking about what these issues are. Um, and so, yeah, we're really looking forward to getting some data around that. And, um, you know, I think, the study was designed in 2017 so you know these things take a long time and as it's gone on I think for me probably the post ICU stuff is going to be the most interesting in terms of how we've gone with that intervention does it work what are the challenges for the patients um, have we been able to improve their intake in that period so I think um, yeah it's going to it's going to provide a lot of information for us to move forward into what we should be doing next I think. I think um, one question that often uh, um, interests clinicians is what the role of top-up uh, PN is. 
Um, we've talked a lot about how we maximise um, appetite and, and all of those sorts of things. What do you do when a patient is just unable to maintain their uh, or achieve their goals for nutrition? Is there a role for topping up parental nutrition, both in the ICU phase and post-ICU? Um, I'll start. I think this varies where you work, and I know Leanne will have a different answer to me, but I think that is, it's good to hear different perspectives. So um, I'm from the Alfred in Melbourne, and we have um, always had a pretty proactive approach to supplemental PN in ICU. We use it quite a lot. We have trouble with post-pyloric feeding. We just don't have access to um, the, the tubes and the techniques and the skill that is required to put them in. So rather than if a patient's failing, we will just go to supplemental PN rather than allowing them to fail, which does happen sometimes, or going to post-pyloric feeding. Um, the post-ICU question is interesting. I think there is data now several large studies that show that enteral and parenteral are equivalent in terms of safety. Um, we always want to prefer enteral because it's more physiological. It protects the gut. There's a lot of um, immune benefits to using the gut. So we should always try and do that. But I don't think there should be the concern around safety with parental nutrition that existed um, many years ago. And then there was the EPINIC study, which um, everyone knows about, which showed clear harm, but it's not been repeated or shown in any other study. And there's been several studies since that have shown that that is not the case. So I think it's probably the results that were shown in that study were probably specific to that study and some of the things that they did in that study versus a whole, you know, systems approach when we've seen other studies haven't shown the same thing. Um, so I think in the post-ICU period, I think we should be more open to using some of these strategies where patients are failing. Um, there's not a lot of data. I think there's probably something that we would need to look into. I think if we are moving into the post-ICU space and trying to enhance nutrition, we're going to have to look at lots of different strategies. So that might be continuing enteral, trying to keep tubes in, and it might be there's is there a role for IV nutrition as well in some form. Um, and so I think they're all questions that we don't have answers to, but we should be open to thinking about them. Yeah, I agree. And um, as Emma mentioned, I think different sites will have different practice. So in ICU, where I work, we're very aggressive with our enteral nutrition approach. And so we have the capability and myself and um, my colleague, who's also a senior dietitian, um, place post-pyloric tubes at the bedside ourselves. And so that does help facilitate um, providing enteral nutrition, but you're always going to have some patients where feeding into the gut's just not possible. Um, in terms of supplemental PN, that's something that as a centre, we don't do well where I work. Um, and I think it is a little bit of that traditional fear. Um, and I think that it definitely has a role. Um, but until there's studies that show that that additional nutrition through supplemental PN has a benefit for the patient long term, I think it can be a little bit of a hard sell. Um, I also think some of the things we have to think about is if we start using things like peripheral PN or supplemental PN post-ICU is often those patients go to wards where that's not a done thing. And so that's maybe where some safety concerns come in and that's going to take a lot of education of the home teams. And I think maybe the dietitian or ICU medical staff having a central role in consulting to those services to make sure it is a safe option. Now that is a key question. If um, patients are discharged, when we talked earlier about having tubes and lines pulled out, often central access is pulled out as part of the discharge process. 
what is the role of peripheral PN in this um, in this uh, issue? It's not, it's not something that I've done a lot of um, just because we don't have it at our centre, but I do, again, think, as I said before, we should be looking at all options. Um, you know, you don't want to have a central line in patient longer than you have to, and I don't think any of us would be advocating for that because there are risks associated with that and, you know, it's not something that you want to do unnecessarily. Um, so looking at other options where it might be a shorter-term provision of a low-dose um, top-up for parental nutrition, I think those sorts of things should be investigated and I think the, the solutions that we provide now are more modern, they're more um, well-tolerated in terms terms of providing things like that peripherally. Um, as Leanne says, it would have to be with a team and in a group of patients where um, you're happy that they would the team would be able to manage that, but it's not saying it can't be done. So I, I do think um, there's probably a role to look into it um, and particularly if we're trying to boost these patients. If we can't do it entrally, then it shouldn't be something we consider. Leanne, Emma, thank you so much for joining us again on this podcast to talk about these issues. It was a fantastic exploration of some of the issues that our patients and their clinicians face. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this one, as well as hundreds of modules, quizzes, articles and videos, visit our website at oslacommunity.com or download the My Osler app.